Hey, everybody. Welcome to That Will Never Work. This week, my guest on the show is Jordan DeSico. He's the co-founder of a company called Super Coffee, a beverage brand that he created in his dorm room when he was just 19. Jordan dropped out of college and now, together with his two brothers, runs the business out of Austin, Texas. With an impressive $125 million annual revenue, their next step is how to scale not just domestically, but also internationally. But how do you keep a company culture you founded from the ground up when you're growing at this pace? And how do you lead as chief people person when your leadership team is made up of your older brothers? That's what I'm planning to talk about today. Hi, I'm Mark Randolph, co-founder of Netflix and six other companies. Over the years, I've heard that will never work thousands of times, but I've learned there are things we all can do to increase the chances that they will. So join me for That Will Never Work. Well, welcome to That Will Never Work, Jordan. Great to have you with me. Mark, thanks so much. I'm very excited to be here and really appreciate you having me on. No worries. So listen, did I get that basically right? You you guys seem to be crushing it and uh, you're bumping into some cultural problems. Is that uh, is that what I hear? I appreciate the kind words. We've grown quite a bit from my from my dorm room blender in 2016. We're doing about 125 million annually in revenue with over 150 employees. And yeah, culture is critical and it's very hard to keep in place when you're scaling at this rate. And that's exactly why I wanted to talk to you. Fantastic. So why did you think the world needed yet another coffee brand? So in our industry, in ready to drink coffee, there wasn't as many options, especially for health conscious uh, millennials, people who are active like myself. I was a college student athlete, always on the go. Yet the only bottled coffee I could get was filled with sugar and artificial ingredients, and I wouldn't put it into my body. So in my dorm room blender, I started making coffee with zero sugar and enhanced with protein and coconut oil. And it gave me so much energy. It made me feel great. I could go to my insane 5 a.m. practices, then go to class and have a great day. And I realized, like, I should bottle this and start a business. And that's exactly what we did. Jordan, something gives me the impression that you were never really anybody who was short of energy. That's that's right. Except when you have 5 a.m. practice followed by class all day, by 4 p.m., you're you're struggling to keep up. So I needed a little boost and sugar wasn't helping me. And a Frappuccino wouldn't uh, wouldn't do the trick? Unfortunately, it wouldn't do the trick for my wallet at the time or for <laughs> my health. <laughs> you started this when you were, what, 19? Is that what I uh, That's right. I, remember? I was a freshman and I was 19 years old and uh, I played basketball in college. Yep. And more importantly, you actually dropped out of school to do this. Yep, absolutely. So after my freshman year, I spent the summer working on the business plan and I put together a pretty strong case for myself at least and found a small manufacturer. And I realized, wow, this is going to take a lot of work and a lot of effort, but I really am having a lot of fun doing it. And I think there's a big opportunity. So I gave up my full scholarship and, and launched the business in what would have been my sophomore year in 2016. And who are your co-founders? My two older brothers, my two older, less athletic brothers, but they both played football in college and they are my, my CEO and my CRO right now. And what are you? I'm the chief operating officer. So I focus mainly on product and people. Product and people. Well, I guess that makes it appropriate that you'd be uh, wanting to explore culture a little bit. Before we even get there, so a hundred and what did you say? A hundred and thirty million dollars in uh, in revenue for the. Yep, one hundred twenty-five million. Yep. Holy mackerel! So how is this? Is this sold in supermarkets? Is this sold mail order? What's the What's the deal? 
Both. We have an omni-channel approach. We're sold in over 45,000 locations in the U.S. alone. And then uh, e-commerce, B2B on our website, through Amazon and other marketplaces, makes up about 15% of our business today. Well, I must confess, and this is quite the admission, maybe I'm the wrong demographic, but I'm like amazed I haven't heard of you guys. <laughs> I mean, 100% bottled, is that the idea? Uh, our core product is 100% bottled here and uh, ready to go. But we also have secondary tertiary products like grounds and pods if you're an at-home coffee drinker. And we also launched recently a creamer with zero sugar so you can add it to your <laughs> coffee at home. I don't know. I'm sorry, Jordan. I got to draw the line at that. I mean, I, I got to say when I'm someplace and they get the coffee awesome and then they bring out the little bin of some kind of chemical in like a, right. a, a little plastic cup. Whether it's uh, zero calories or not is the least of my worries. Bring on the half and half. It's kind of what I say. I like but it. I get it. I get it. I'm not a millennial. Different habits. So I'm still <laughs> I'm still drinking out of. I can see here in the if there, anyone is watching this video, I'm drinking this out of a coffee cup. It's a cappuccino I made myself. Curious, curious. <laughs> Nonetheless, you can't argue with 125 million dollars a year sales. So give me a sense of. Um, where did the culture that you have now come from, and what are you sensing are the pressures that are that are coming? Yeah, so the culture came from the founders, right, and naturally came from our parents and how we were raised as competitive athletes, but also as very compassionate entrepreneurs who wanted to make an impact, which led to the core values and, and again, what we describe as, as our culture. And initially, we started hiring people who were like-minded, right? We wanted to bring on people who understood the, the value of hard work, but also treating people with compassion. And that scaled up pretty nicely, but I think around 25 employees, we realized we really need to, to codify this and tighten it and refine it and, and make it special. And that's what we focused on the past four years, really, is building a great company around a set of values, around a mission and, and a purpose that connects us all to this broader sense and meaning for the company. But I think what we're, what we're focused on now is it's great to do it at our current size, but how do you scale that from 150 to 1,000 employees and from a domestic-only business to an international business? I think that's the next challenge because that's where we want to take this company. So uh, right now you're about 150 employees. Is that what, you, what you're saying? That's right. Uh, is everybody in one location? Nope. So we are remote in all 50 states just because the vast majority is our sales force. Oh, I see. What tools do you use now to uh, make sure that you have a consistent culture across the organization? Yeah. So I think right now some of the main communication channels that we, that we utilize are tools like Slack, our performance management system is, is Lattice, but it has some great platforms and tools in there that allow us to, to effectively communicate and monitor performance um, and also general census from the company. And then good old-fashioned all-hands calls still on a weekly basis like we are a small company to keep things as tight as possible. So one more question for you, Jordan, and uh, I'm not sure the right way to express this. I'm curious how you're organized. In other words, how many layers are there? So take someone who's out calling on the uh, Whole Foods account. They report to a sales manager. Do they report back into headquarters? Which one of your the brothers actually manages the sales force and how many levels is there between that person and the, uh, the bottom rung? Jake, the, our middle brother, is the chief revenue officer. So all of sales rolls up to him. Right now we have six layers in between and generally three to eight direct reports is the, the span of control that we're targeting. So not all, at our current size, not all layers are being fully maximized and that's where we have room to consolidate and improve that. So let me make sure I have this right. Six layers? 
So Jake has someone reporting to him who has someone reporting to him who has someone reporting to her who has someone reporting to them. And then there's the final person who's out calling. Is that what you mean by six layers? Six levels, not necessarily layers because each manager, right, can manage multiple levels. So we have three levels for the field sales team for inline promotion opportunities. And then they will have one manager. So it's really more like three layers with additional levels in between each layer. So Jake has someone reporting to him and that person has someone reporting to her and that person has someone reporting to them. That's right. And then are, are we at the bottom or is there one more layer below that? Nope. All that's right. right. So you have your, your typical <laughs> executive VP director. There is a senior management level in there and then all entry entry level field roles. I got it. Okay. And for those of you following along at home, you can probably put away your whiteboards and your markers <laughs> here. I think we've got the general yeah. idea here. So I got to break some news to you. My sense is that your culture is already kind of messed up. That your sense of what your culture is, I'm going to bet. Now, I could be totally wrong yeah. that it doesn't scale all the way to the bottom. You may believe that the people you hire share your values, and mm -hmm. maybe the people they hire share their values, but ah, no way does it go down that deep without exceptional effort at maintaining those things. Because the culture is not just these aspects I think you were describing, and, and I, I'm not saying that you limit yourself to these. It's not just uh, we believe in health, and we believe in hard work, and we believe in it's really, it comes down to how you act on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, how you resolve conflicts, how do you deal with customers, how you answer questions, how you make decisions, how, where you are in the risk profile. And those are hugely kind of almost intangible things that it's really, really hard to express them. I mean, Netflix with its famous culture, which is really at one level, extremely simple, Right. takes like a 130 page a culture deck to describe it right because it's so trying to encapture what are examples of what does this actually mean how does this work in practice and so my imagination is that many levels you are already in trouble because here now i'll lay on you the big truth about culture i buy in entirely to the first piece which is culture springs from you you and your brothers that is where the culture of the company came from, is how the three of you treated each other. It's the way the three of you treated your original vendors. It's the way you made decisions. It's the way you worked collaboratively. And whether you liked it or not, that became your culture. Even if you said, oh, we'd like to be more, uh, whatever you wanted it to be, I'm going to guess was rapidly distinguished beneath the accumulated ways that the three of you managed to interact, which is all stuff that you've been learning. Well, you were 19 at the time, had been learning for the preceding 17 years. Um, I'm going to give you a waiver on the first two years. Really hard to, to mask that. And especially since, well, I assume all three of you are first-time founders? Yes. Your older brothers? Okay. Yep. So you were probably not paying a lot of attention to it, except for perhaps lip service to like everyone says, we want to have a great culture. Number one, right. no assholes. Yeah, it's yeah, usually yeah. the very usually the very first one everyone comes up with. Right. Um, especially people who've worked for other people before. All right. <laughs> you get the you get the thing. So it all comes from how you behave. But here's the truth is that 
if you don't nail it in that first level, you're screwed. Right. Meaning that the you three, that first layer beneath you, which I'm going to guess if that you are the the C level, and then beneath that there's a VP level. That's right. Yep. So if you haven't nailed it with the VP level, you're in trouble because the truth is the culture comes from the founders and then it gets pretty heavily cemented in that first level. And the reason it gets so heavily cemented in the first level is because that first level is seeing everything you guys are doing. They have direct contact. And more importantly, you see everything they're doing. You hired them. I mean, directly, you were in charge of choosing who to bring in. You probably all debated with your brothers about this person versus this person. Right. And then you saw them day to day, how they reacted. They saw day to day how you reacted. So that's a pretty easy cultural communication. It happens without even any effort. It's just all observational. The challenge is now you go to the next level because the truth is the next level learns their culture maybe from you. Mm-hmm but they certainly learn it from the level who hired them. And probably at that point in the company, in the first year or two, even though you may have had multiple levels, it was small enough that every single person you hired had a lot of interaction with you and your brothers. Yep. And you and your brothers may even have been the people who hired them, just that you were really connected. And so that works great. But then pretty quickly, and probably right after that, you get to the point where you may not know everybody's name, you certainly probably don't know everyone's uh, partner's name or right. whether they have a dog or not. Uh, you probably don't know where they live. I mean, you all of a sudden get to the point where I don't really know these people, that your interaction with them is very, very limited, especially when you multiply it by the problem you have now of geographic distribution. Yep. They don't see you making decisions. They don't see you arguing with your brothers and how you resolve that conflict. Right. They don't see you talking going, oh, my God, these these distributors are our best customers, but they're really a bunch of dicks. And then seeing what you do about that. They just don't see it. Right. I mean, they see the fact they go, well, wow, that company, that was a big customer. and They're not here anymore. What what happened? Well, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they don't, don't see it. And this is all saying that unless you make sure every single time you interact with the people you interact with, you're consistent. It's never going to trickle down. And even the trickle down is going to be diluted unless you're really, really aggressive about that piece of it. Okay, that's the biggest, biggest thing. So listen, in summary, the truth is that your first 10 employees, yes, they're going to pick up the culture from you and your brothers. But the next 90 employees are going to pick up the culture from those second 10. Mm -hmm. And here's the question you're asking. Your next 900 are gonna get their culture from those first 90. And so unless you're extremely careful about cultural consistency, it just dilutes and pretty soon, no matter what you say you want it to be, it is out of your control. So in the interest of being helpful, there actually are things that you can do about this. The first one is when I say get it right with those first 10 people, It means you have to be really overzealous about enforcing the things that you think truly are important. And part of that is just stepping back and looking at what of my behavior do I really believe are the important components of it. 
And that's not easy. That is why that Netflix culture deck is 130 some odd pages long. Right. It's because at the simplest level, it sprang from how Reed and I treated each other. But you then begin to have to really step back and think, what is it that we think about that way we work together is powerful? And trying to convert that into something. And then you get to that truth. And in our case, it was really this radical honesty mm-hmm. was probably the fundamental tenet of it. And then you have to begin going, what does radical honesty really mean? And, and how is that uh, enforced? There was elements of, for example, data-driven decision-making. What does that mean? What does it mean that we really want full participation? We were trying to empower people. We we're trying to push decision-making out to the edges of the organization. What does that mean? And it's easy to say those things. I mean, you are the chief people person for the organization. Do you also have a human resources department? Or is yes. that you? Yeah, we do. It rolls up. It rolls up to me. And but but you're the you're the person. I am technically de facto chief people officer. Yes. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a conflict of interest here, because what I say is that I believe that role of the chief people officer. Hate that term, by the way. But yes, that that person um, is not to administer benefits, and it's not to do payroll, and it's not to right put out the, oh, this person was mean, and oh, you can get along. It's not that stuff. The fundamental, most important role that person has is to enforce the cultural rules of the organization. And usually, that means enforcing it with the founders. And as a classic one, you know, you know, Reed and I used to have this method of problem solving where basically, we love to argue with each other. I mean, it was this egoless thing where we just go back and forth like dogs and cats. And then as soon as we had used that method to get to what we thought was the most compelling answer, it was like we hadn't even been arguing. All of a sudden, we both would go, aha. And then it doesn't make a difference whose idea it was, and you both fall in behind and you support it. But that tended to happen sometimes. We'd exclude other voices in the room because we were so caught up in this. And then one time, Patty McCord, who was our um, chief people officer at Netflix, you know, after the meeting concluded, she took us aside and said, you know, you guys talk all the time about how you want to empower other people's decision making and you want to have everyone participating. What percentage of the words spoken in that room came from you and Reed? Both of us are like hanging our heads like, right. we're sorry. <laughs> but, it, but it's right. It's like going, I was saying one thing and doing another. And it wasn't a question of me and Reed getting it right, because we have a fine relationship that way. It was making it clear to everyone else how important this was, because they were going to have meetings that we weren't in and that Patty wasn't in with their reports. And if they went and began saying, in the absence of any data, well, my decision is what counts, that's not what we wanted. Right. And they wouldn't necessarily know that was a cultural piece of the organization. It had to start with us getting it right and us enforcing this discipline of when it got wrong, we fixed it. The other classic one, the no assholes rule, which every organization has. Unfortunately, it's almost always executed as no assholes unless they're too valuable. 
And that's another place where the chief people officer has to enforce this discipline, which is, listen, your highest revenue salesperson is a dick. Everyone doesn't like them. They're, mm. they're annoying. They're, they're, they're demeaning to people. What do we believe here? And I'm not saying that means you fire the person. Maybe you say, no, our culture, forget this, uh, no assholes. We don't say that's not important. It's not important. Right. But if it is important, if you genuinely believe that, then you've got to enforce it. You've got to show it. And every opportunity you have to do skip-level meetings, you're always thinking about how do I enforce this culture? How do I model it? How am I consistent? And I've spoken about this in other podcasts, but there are certain things you do which speak infinitely louder than other ones. And it's basically who you hire and who you fire and who you reward. One of the most tragic cases is you have someone who's your top salesperson. You're belittling people and they're mean. And you go, all right, we're going to, we, we, this is not just lip service. We believe it. We're going to fire this person. Yep. And then you get up in front of the company at your all hands and you announce that Joe or Mary is leaving uh, because uh, wants to spend more time with their family. Or they're leaving because, and you just totally blew it. You yep. missed this opportunity to really send this message that we're serious about this. That if you, three, six levels down, are in charge of hiring, firing, and managing someone, it is okay to do things which on the surface seem suicidal when they really are supporting these cultural things we think are important. But that's why I'm saying it all rolls back to saying, make sure that your actions match what your lips are doing. Right. And make sure that your actions and your lips are matching what you really think are the things that are the things you want to stand for. Because if you don't get them right now, in fact, if you don't get them right two or three years ago, it just gets infinitely harder to correct it when you have a thousand people. Because now you have a manager who is managing uh, your uh, Asia Pacific region who has no clue that they, they've, they've worked in six other companies. They've got their own culture. That's worked fine for them. Thank you. But unless you are there in those meetings and seeing what happens and how it works and how they interact with customers and employees and their peers and their above level people and can correct it and model it, you've just basically said every single person who works for them, which eventually would be three or 400 people yep. now has a culture, which has nothing to do with what you and your brothers uh, stood for. So on one hand, ah, trivial to build it. I could explain it to you in uh, 15 minutes. <laughs> Doing it, brutal. Yep. Really, really hard. So your marching orders here, Jordan, is when you are in meetings with your brothers, even though they are older, even though one of them is the CEO, and he does or says something which you believe is inconsistent, you got to call him on it. And that's the time then to go off the two or three of you and say, I had to call you on that because I think we're saying one thing and doing another. We've got to change either what we're doing or we've got to change what we're saying. Uh, and we've got to get this right. And you've got to use opportunities all throughout. You've got to make it clear to people that they should be taking this role with their people. Now that you have 150 people, you've got right. a little bit of catching up to do to work that down through the organization. All right, I'm going to throw one more thing in. I haven't even let you get a word in edgewise. Um, 
And I know for someone who's probably had seven or eight bottles of coffee at this point, That's in the day, right. you're like dying to say something. <laughs> uh, I'll point out that I recognize that culture is not universal and you are about to wade into the ultimate storm of uh, cultural differences when you go international. Mm -hmm. Because the things that we take for granted here in the United States do not apply every place. And you'll be spending, you're gonna, I, I just gave you a big assignment that says, really examine the things that you do and how you act and what you say and say, are these really the things I want to be the culture? And now you have to kind of catch up for lost time and make sure every single one of the 150 people in your organization models that behavior before the next 1,500 people come in and learn their bad habits from these people. Right. Then you're going to have to go, all this stuff that I went through to think and believe uh, it doesn't work in Japan. Mm -hmm. They are different. And oh my God, it definitely doesn't work in Scandinavia where, or in, even in, in uh, the Netherlands where they are just even blunter than Americans are. Right. And it doesn't work in this country or that country or this country. Um, it's really interesting challenge, not only in trying to decide which of our values scale, but then also deciding which of our values how would you interpret those? It's very similar to when someone's translating a novel. You're not doing it word for word. You're trying to capture the poetry of the person's meaning mm -hmm. and render it in a different language. And that's what you're going to have to do, is you're going to have to translate these cultural things so that that spirit emerges in a different country's inherent way of behaving. I love that, Mark. That's amazing. And I think it's uh, something that we, we strive to do, but the importance level, especially in the, the senior leadership meetings, calling out the brothers is, is where it starts. So that, that feedback, again, it's, it's easier said than done, but something that needs to, needs to take place. So I appreciate that for sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it, the secret is that culture is observational, not aspirational. It, I don't care what you want your culture to be. How you behave is gonna speak 99 times louder than what you, than the poster you put up in the break room. Right. Um, and, and I'm so psyched that you are the person who's bringing this forward because I'm not saying it falls on you to do it. Mm -hmm. It falls on you to pay attention to it and say, this is important and we need to get this right, including other people in the organization. What, what Patty McCord did phenomenally well is help other people in the organization, help our managers recognize what does it mean to model this behavior, to watch them run their team meetings, to mm -hmm. watch them when they gave feedback. You know, because certainly at Netflix, you know, we've already had a pretty strong definition of, of these aspects. Like, for example, you know, the radical honesty in a nutshell basically meant you will never say something behind someone's back that you won't say to them in person. And same thing, that missing this opportunity as a lesson when someone leaves or is rewarded is make sure the whole organization understands why they left or why you fired them, because otherwise you're missing this opportunity. And that's what a chief people person has as the primary goal. It's easy to hire someone to do benefits, easy to hire someone to do your salary bans, really hard to find someone to help the organization walk the walk and talk the talk. That's awesome. And I love Patty's book too. I had a chance to read it and some of the, the information in there was invaluable as well. So that's awesome to hear. Yeah. The, and the other book, which you, if you haven't read already is Reed's book, 
um, uh, which is also fantastic, especially its sections on how you translate culture into different into different countries. I, I love that you mentioned that, and I did I did uh, read it, and it was phenomenal. And that portion kind of stuck out to me. So the fact that you reiterated that and confirmed it is uh, is great to know, and a challenge that that I look forward to. And of course, I assume you've read my book. I haven't. That's what I'm looking forward to <laughs> next. <laughs> Good recovery there, Jordan. Good recovery. Because <laughs> I, I do talk a lot about culture in there. And, you know, as you can tell, I love talking about this. It's probably one of the most important things for an entrepreneur to really understand the impact. As, as one of these, I guess, with Andreessen Horowitz, you know, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Right. Very, very true. Well, good luck. Go get it. Um, I want to uh, check back in with you at some point in the future, maybe when you hit the 300 mark. And uh, I mean, either million or employees. And let's see how you did. And I'd love to hear the results as you begin to go back and audit your culture. Yep. Go out to some of these people on the edges of the organization and put together a quiz. Write a five question quiz in a scenario. Hard ones. Right, something like, you know, you find out that a distributor is X. Um, you have an employee, you have two employees who, I mean, I can't even guess what these are, but five interesting questions and begin giving that quiz to people. It'll blow your assumption of how <laughs> consistent and well understood your culture is. Yeah, um, I love that. And be an interesting exercise for you. I love that. Will do. And I'll keep you posted on our progress for sure, Mark, and really appreciate all the insights. Thank you. My pleasure, Jordan. Good luck. Thanks, Mark. If you liked what you heard today, take a minute to subscribe so you don't miss a single weekly episode. If you've got a business problem you're struggling with and would like to join me on the show, simply come to markrandolph.com forward slash guest to apply. And while you're there, add yourself to my mailing list so you're up to date on all my news and entrepreneurial tips. And finally, if a 30-minute podcast is just too much, I share all my hints and tips in more easily digestible nuggets on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and yes, even TikTok. You'll find links to all this stuff, plus my blogs and other writing on markrandolph.com. Check it out. Thanks again for listening and see you all next week. group.